Good afternoon to Katiana. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 965 KPL. Glad to be with you guys on this chilly afternoon. Colder now than it was than I stepped when I stepped out of my house this morning, and it's only going to get colder overnight. Right now, a couple of different forecasts suggesting some precipitation, possibly a wintry mix overnight. Nothing clear on that right now. No, uh, uh, no answers as to what school systems look like at the moment. If that does happen to get announced uh, during the show today, we will, of course, bring that to you. Right now, everything looks like we're uh, going to continue on with schools as normal, but that could change depending on how schools interpret the forecasts overnight. Now, last night was a big night. Last night, uh, the Biden agenda officially died. And I think it's important to kind of take this uh, and try to tie it all together. So the Biden agenda is not just the voting rights bill that they've been pushing this whole time. It also includes things like Build Back Better, uh, you know, their their environmental issues, all of that. Well, it's all pretty much dead right now. Reforming the bill of bus- filibuster is gone. The voting rights bill is dead uh, for the fifth time. And Build Back Better looks like it's going, it's pretty much dead as of right now. Last night, as of 10.33 p.m., Eastern time, so 9.33 our time. The Democratic Party was unable to pass the voting rights bill, and they lost on the nuclear option of the filibuster in a 52-48 vote. Two senators, uh, Manchin and Cinema, crossed lines to vote with Republicans to keep the filibuster alive. Now, there's a reason these two did this. These two have openly said it is to prevent Republicans from being able to abuse the power of a bare majority in the Senate. They understand that in politics, never give yourself a power you don't want the other side to have. And that's what the Democrats were trying to do. They were trying to force this through, trying to federalize elections in order to get this. And really, the Democrats forced this vote knowing that the votes weren't there, that they weren't going to be able to pass it. But Joe Biden let the mask slip in a speech when he said that he you couldn't consider elections uh, legitimate. Uh, if this bill didn't pass. And the White House has tried to walk that statement back, but it's stuck. Now everybody's saying, well, why, you know, why would we, uh, why would we support something? Why, why would we say that any election is legitimate if it hasn't had this before? What a lot of people aren't understanding is that the voting bills that have been passed that are controversial really don't do much different than what other voting packages that have been passed across the country, including in liberal states, already do. There was not much change, but the rhetoric was so heated behind some of these bills that it actually kind of hurt the PR efforts of this. Now, granted, any change to the voting system by a Republican state is going to be met with heavy resistance by the Democrats, regardless of the merits of the argument. They're just going to push it. They're going to call voter suppression and everything. But here is the problem that the Republicans, I mean, that the Democrats face right now. Joe Biden's numbers are universally bleak. A new M- uh, NBC News poll dropped today. Uh, during his inaugural address one year ago, President Joe Biden championed unity, promised a bold governing agenda, and prioritized defeating the coronavirus. Now, as he begins his second year, happy anniversary, by the way, for the swearing in of President Joe Biden. Uh, from N- from NBC News, now as Biden begins his second year as president, majorities of Americans give him low marks for uniting the country, being competent, and having the ability to handle a crisis, according to results from a new NBC News poll. What's more, 
Six in 10 voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the economy, while more than half give him thumbs down on dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. His overall job rating among adults stands at 43% approve and 54% disapprove, unchanged in essence from October's survey of this in this same poll. Here are the numbers on specific issues. On the economy, voters approve at 38% to the 60% who disapprove. On the coronavirus, 44 approve, 53% disapprove. On the U.S.-Russia relationship, 37 approve, 50% disapprove. On foreign policy, 37% approve, uh, 54% disapprove. Now, I mentioned yesterday that the issues hitting Americans the hardest, uh, COVID-19 and the economy, are largely going unaddressed by Biden and the Democrats while they've continued to focus on this whole voting rights bill. Voters have a tendency to focus on the immediate needs in front of them. They want the government to focus on the issues that are right there that are causing the biggest distraction. Right now, it's the economy and it's COVID-19. But buried in this poll is another bit of information. The Republican Party's future is still up in the air right now. Since January of 2019, this poll has asked if Republican voters supported Donald Trump or the Republican Party more. For most of the question's history, Trump has hovered in the low 50% range to the high 40%. And the GOP has been coming in second, usually sometimes behind a few points, but Trump has maintained a steady lead. In October, I'm sorry, in August, he hit a low of 40%. Versus the GOP's 50%. This is August uh, This is August of 2021. In October of 2021, he crept back up to, to 43% while the GOP held steady at 50%. This month, Trump hit a new low on this question. When asked if, voters per, if Republican voters preferred Trump or the Republican Party, the GOP surged to 56% preference and Trump sank to 36% preference. There's a 20% difference there. So while all of Biden's woes keep piling up, Trump has not been able to keep his numbers in the Republican Party up. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't have a social media platform to give his daily rants to and give his daily thoughts on things. He has to release press statements that don't always get coverage. Biden's agenda and his lack of political skill in handling any of the crises in America has been a gift to Republicans. They don't even have to come out and do or say anything. The Democrats just keep fumbling the ball over and over again. They keep tripping over themselves. It's made the GOP look a whole lot better in the eyes of moderate and centrist voters. They're seeing polling surges, the Republicans are, and the Democrats are acting very terrified because of it. This is giving several Republicans a new avenue to build up their own platforms and make their names better known. It's led to Ron DeSantis of Florida getting a bigger name, getting more name recognition in the country. It's led, uh, it's led Glenn Youngkin to shock Virginia voters and the, the nation. It's given an opportunity for Josh Hawley of Missouri. It's provided Ted Cruz an opportunity to essentially soft relaunch his image before voters. That's not to say that Trump can't or won't be a force in politics in the future, but he's lagging behind right now. His best shot will be at trying to get his preferred candidates into office in 2022, like he's doing in the Georgia gubernatorial race and like he's doing elsewhere. But if he can't win those elections, 
it may be time to rethink his position within the party. I still think his optimal way forward is for him to play the role of kingmaker, where he can be the person to endorse candidates, give his support, and basically be the guy that says, here's who's going to carry on my legacy. If he wants to do that, he can secure his legacy in a pretty positive way. We're going to go ahead and take a break here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 965 KPL. If you want to call in 232-1542 when we come back after this break. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. If you want to take part in the conversation, 232-1542, you can also join me on social media at Joe P. Cunningham on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. Leave uh, your comments, your statements, or your just general complaints there. I cannot offer any refunds for what you're listening to, but I can offer my sincerest condolences. If you miss any part of the show, you can also find our podcast up on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Back in the early days of the United States, probably the most controversial president of the time of that era was Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson received a lot of negative criticism from Congress, from the press. He took a lot of executive actions that people didn't like. When Jackson was out of office, though, he remained a very active force behind the scenes in his party. He would endorse or criticize candidates. He would push his party to nominate somebody. He would give his general and very candid thoughts about people. He remained a very active force. And I I think that is a big credit to Jackson's legacy. Jackson's one of my favorite presidents to study. But I think part of his legacy is so strong because he remained so active in his party and was so strongly opinionated and, and, and did so many things to push his party forward. I think the same, th- the same potential exists for Donald Trump in 2022 and in 2024. He can play that same type of kingmaker role in the Republican Party, and it does a couple of things. One, it gets the media and the Democrats to continue to force on Donald Trump in a way that a lot of voters simply aren't. They will continue to talk and scream about Donald Trump, despite the fact that he's not running for office or he's in office, but he's behind the scenes. And everybody will think, everybody in the Democrats, the Democratic Party, everybody in the media will say that this candidate is corrupted by Trump and everything like that. But if Trump is behind the scenes just pushing people and guiding his base toward people, he is ensuring victories in his party. But that requires a few things. One, it requires Trump to not run in 2024, something he can't announce that he's not doing until after 2022. The candidates he's pushing, the races he wants to be involved in right now, just lose all momentum, his side does, if he says that he's not running for president in 2024. But after the 2022 elections, he can come out and say that he wishes to guide the Republican Party, and so he'll keep a close eye on the candidates, and he'll determine which one he supports. And in that way, it keeps Trump's base active. It says, okay— this is our guy, whoever he says go with, we're going to go with. And it keeps the Republican Party 
a little more honest because they know that if they don't do what the Republican base wants, because the Republican base is is pretty loyal to Trump, and Trump loves his base. The people who are very, very pro-Trump, they, they, they know Trump loves him. He did everything he could to make that base happy. He adores his supporters. And they will listen to him, and he will listen to them. And that will keep the Republican Party a bit honest, because as much scorn as Trump voters get, they had very legitimate and genuine concerns. And I think that if Trump does end up playing that role, and I suspect that that's on, that's on the list. I suspect it. I suspect that Trump is thinking it right now. But it bodes very well for the Republican Party if that's the route that he decides to take because it eliminates the potential controversy of a Trump candidacy but keeps him very active and keeps his base very active and engaged. 232-1542, if you want to take part in the conversation I want to jump to another national story, one that I talked about yesterday, this this Supreme Court story. I've now, so if you didn't listen yesterday, Nina Totenberg of, of NPR uh, wrote a story two days ago saying that Chief Justice John Roberts, before hearings, told the Supreme Court justices to wear a mask because uh, liberal justice Sonia Sotomayor has health issues. And wanted to protect her health and, and keep her from having any health issues. Everybody wear a mask. And that Neil Gorsuch, who sits directly next to her in these hearings, did not wear one. The story admitted a couple things, like the fact that every justice took their mask off when they were talking. Gorsuch just didn't wear one at all. But yesterday, in an unprecedented move, all three justices that were specifically featured in that story came out and rebutted the story. There was a joint statement released by Sotomayor and Gorsuch saying, this never happened. We believe in collegiality. And Sotomayor says, I never asked anybody to wear a mask for my sake. A lot of the media circled the the wagons around Nina Totenberg and said, well, this doesn't prove anything because the story said that John Roberts told him to wear a mask and he didn't. So yesterday afternoon, right before this show, Roberts released a statement saying, I never told anybody that they had to wear a mask. But the media is standing by it. NPR is actually standing behind the reporting here. I've heard now two theories on this, and they, tie, they kind of tie into each other. They're from separate people, but they kind of tie in. The first theory comes from Mark Hemingway. He used to be the, at the Weekly Standard. Now is at Real Clear Investigations. His wife, by the way, is Molly Hemingway of The Federalist. I, I know you've heard her on Fox, uh, seen her on Fox, heard her on talk radio. I know you've heard her, but Mark, her husband, is a very good reporter and conservative writer. Last night, he posited that this story came from either Sotomayor herself or her aides in trying to in trying to put out some negative press about Gorsuch. A lot of the feedback to Mark's theory was probably the aides, because Sotomayor did come out and, and really emphasize the collegiality of the justices in the Supreme Court. So maybe the aides, maybe staff. Because remember, Supreme Court justices pick aides, they pick staff of similar political ideology that, that they have. Today on his radio show, my buddy Eric Erickson said that he thinks this was dropped by liberal aides in the Supreme Court as a means of pressuring the Supreme Court. Now, why would they do that? The suspicion 
and I, I think I agree with Erickson on this, and, and, with, and Hemingway's theory, I think, kind of backs this up as well. I think it's a good theory. Sotomayor's aides come out and drop this story and give it to Nina Totenberg, who is a progressive activist in the guise of an NPR journalist. And they drop this story about Gorsuch because he is either crafting or very heavily influencing the opinion on the Dobbs case that was before the Supreme Court that they heard hearings about. And the Dobbs case is a very, very interesting one because it has a major impact on potentially gutting or overturning Roe versus Wade. So if Sotomayor's or any liberal justice's aides drop this story about Gorsuch, it's an attempt to influence the courts. It's it's an attempt to pressure the court because Neil Gorsuch is having a very heavy hand in the crafting of this opinion. The common legal thinking right now is that Roberts, who is very pro-life, his his wife is a pro-life activist, donates to pro-life causes, that Roberts is going to side with the conservatives and at least gut part of Roe versus Wade. That would undo a lot of that pro-abortion decision from the Supreme Court. Gorsuch what is not one of the ones expected to write the court's opinion on it if it is a conservative majority there. It's suspected that either Roberts himself will write that opinion or give it to Amy Coney Barrett, the lone conservative woman on the bench. Probably Roberts would be thinking if the court's going to go with this, that they are going to give it to the conservative woman on the Supreme Court bench. And that would be, that would kind of... uh, dampen some of the, the, the blowback to it. But if Gorsuch, and this is something that has happened in Supreme Court history, if Gorsuch is writing a concurring opinion that is really exemplary and very convincing, the Supreme Court can go ahead and pick that up as this court's opinion, and Barrett's or Roberts' opinion would be a concurring one. But we'll see. It's very It's almost impossible to actually predict what the Supreme Court is going to do. We won't get the opinion on the Dobbs case until the end of June. The way the Supreme Court typically works is that they, all, of all the major cases in their session, they drop all of their opinions, they, they drop them uh, one at a time throughout the month of June. The biggest cases are typically saved for last. Dobbs will probably be the last case opinion that will be dropped in June. Again, impossible to predict, but that's kind of where we're leaning on, where, where speculation's leaning on this. If the conservatives have a majority, the media and the Democrats are going to lose their minds over it. And so they want to pressure the Supreme Court on it. So we need to keep an eye out for more negative opinion, more negative stories on Gorsuch and how the media continues to circle the wagons around Nina Totenberg and this story. We're going to take a break for the bottom of the hour news. When we come back, let's talk about Gary Chambers. Let's talk about what's going on in state politics and gubernatorial politics here in Louisiana. 232-1542. If you want to join in the conversation, we will take a break and be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. You want to join in the conversation? 232-1542. Um, a bit of news, and, and we can follow this away under the elections have consequences uh, tag. Uh, Jason Mieres, the uh, the attorney general, recently elected Republican attorney general of Virginia, announced yesterday, I'm proud to announce Virginia is no longer participating in West Virginia versus EPA, a lawsuit that could devastate the coal industry and the thousands of jobs it supports in southwest Louisiana. I'm sorry, not Louisiana, southwest Virginia. Virginia is no longer anti-coal. Now, Jason Mieres is a Hispanic American Republican 
who won statewide office in Virginia, along with Winsome Sears, the uh, lieutenant governor of Virginia, and Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor of the state. This is why Virginia, losing Virginia is such a blow to the Democrats. Virginia has always been kind of a bellwether leading up to midterm elections. And Republicans taking the state legislature and these three statewide seats bodes very ill for Democrats in 2022. Now, speaking of 2022, I've got to talk again about Gary Chambers and his pot smoking ad. It was this morning on Acadiana's Morning News. I think one of the stories was about Governor John Bell Edwards' reaction to this uh, to this ad and, and to the Senate race overall. Edwards in the clip praised Luke Mixon, the uh, white candidate from central Louisiana uh, with a military background like Edwards, was going to position himself basically as more of a moderate Democrat like Edwards in his run against Kennedy, uh, Senator John Kennedy. He then went on to uh, criticize the Chamber's marijuana ad and to say that he didn't think it was a good look, basically. Chambers' ad is getting a ton, still, a ton of national media attention because the message is so important for a lot of national uh, criminal justice reform causes, both left and right. There are many causes on the right joining with the left saying, yeah, we need to work on decriminalization. We need to rethink drug policy in America. And this ad was very upfront and in your face about it. It was an internet ad. It was only meant to, to generate headlines. It was not meant for TV. It's probably not going to see TV or maybe a version of it will make it there. But this was an ad meant for the internet, meant to stoke social media reactions and to get it in front of national media. And it worked brilliantly. It worked. And it puts Chambers at an advantage over Mixon which is not good for Edwards, who, like the rest of the white Democrats in the state, are really looking for Edwards to have a successor like Mixon in statewide politics. But if Chambers is going to suck all the air out of the room, but not inhale, then he is going to upend the the white Democrats' agenda in the state of Louisiana. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. 60% of Democratic voters are black. They will have to contend with Chambers being a force in state politics. He wants to be like Stacey Abrams of Georgia. He wants to be that way here in Louisiana, and I think he has the potential to do that. And Edwards showing his disapproval early on is not a good look for him and for the rest of the Democrats of the state. They are once again ignoring what black voters are looking for in the state. So I find that very interesting. And that is uh, that is going to be an interesting dynamic on the Democratic side. Now, on the Republican side, yesterday the news broke that uh, John Schroeder, Louisiana treasurer, is basically declared he's running for uh, for governor. Uh, he is. Uh, he there was a message that went out to supporters saying he was. That was picked up by USA Today Network and uh, the Advocate, and that was reported. We also know that Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser and Attorney General Jeff Landry are looking at running as well. They All, all three have been raising a ton of money uh, since last year, preparing for that election cycle to begin. Now, over at the Hayride, Scott McKay, 
uh, writes, the, the jockeying between uh, Jeff Landry and John Schroeder has begun. And he, he ties it to uh, the Louisiana Bond Commission. Uh, there was a letter sent from Jeff Landry to John Schroeder where Landry is, is saying that the Louisiana Bond Commission the US, and the state treasury need to be like Virginia and divest any and all of its investments away from BlackRock. BlackRock is a is the largest financial institution in the world. Um, it is an investment firm. They have tentacles in every kind of economic activity. Here from uh, from McKay at the Hayride. But nobody elected BlackRock to be our corporate overlords and tell us what to do. And BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is not somebody who would want who anybody would want to make president or governor. He's the perfect avatar for the globalist elite crowd who think they can change the nature of the free market and alter human behavior for the, for the simple reason they're rich and powerful enough to make it hurt. He doesn't want you to drive a car that runs on gasoline. He doesn't want you to own a gun. Actually, he thinks you should live a whole lot like Chinese people live. That's his vision for utopia. BlackRock has staggering amounts of money invested with the Chinese Communist Party, and those investments haven't made China more like America. The opposite is true. So Landry's making an issue of this, and, and by making an issue of it, like West Virginia, he wants the state of Louisiana to pull its investments out, pull its money out of BlackRock. And it's kind of, as McKay points out, a, a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose situation for Schroeder. Both Schroeder and Landry are going to run as the conservatives in the race. Nungesser is going to try to run as a moderate Republican and try to, to win the center, and I don't think that pl that's going to play well for him, but it's going to be a conservative's race. Now, Schroeder and Landry are the ones to look at here. How the infighting between them goes will dictate this race. If Schroeder decides to copy what West Virginia is doing, though, Landry gets to take credit by basically saying that he encouraged Schroeder to do so. If he doesn't, he's going to look like a, a, a moderate rhino who favors Wall Street instead of Main Street. So Landry is actually going to probably win this political battle. It's going to be very interesting. Three Republican names, Nungesser, Schroeder, and Landry. If I had to pick, I would say Landry's the favorite. I think he's got more name recognition. I think he's more popular. But Schroeder is a conservative and will run as a conservative. And the financial issues that continue to plague the stake are something that Schroeder can really talk about to a greater extent than Landry can. Landry will make a play for kind of that Trump-like base and, and focus more on that, that MAGA mentality, I guess is what you would call it. It sounds derogatory, but, but you guys know what I'm saying. Overall, I think, like I said, Landry is the favorite. But there's still a long ways to go between now and 2023. And again, you're looking at three Republicans on this side and up to three Democrats on the other side. Gary Chambers and Luke Mixon are running for U.S. Senate, knowing full well that Kennedy's probably going to get close to 60%, if not over, and not need a runoff. And then there's whispers that Sharon Weston Broom of, of Baton Rouge wants to run. So you've got all sorts of Democrats who want to make a play here. Three Democrats, three Republicans. If this is the stage as it's set up, if this were how it were set up right now and you, you told me to, to pick a matchup for a runoff, I would say Landry and Chambers. 
I think that's where it's going. I think that's where this state is headed. Chambers is the candidate to look at because he is going to be the guy that we are going to be able to tell where the future of the Democratic Party in the state of Louisiana is going. 232-1542, if you want to take part in the conversation, we've got one more segment to go. And I want to jump when we get back to COVID-19 and some signs that we may be over the, the, the hill on Omicron and possibly the last hill for any extreme COVID measures. All that and more when we come back after this break. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 965 KPL. I am uh, I'm, I'm receiving word uh, St. Landry Parish schools have announced they are going to be open tomorrow. So no school closures as of yet. One school system say they are going to be open tomorrow. I imagine we'll get more of those messages. Uh, we're still seeing some hints at maybe a wintry mix in some of the news reports, but nothing consistent. And it looks like temperatures are actually getting a couple degrees warmer in the current forecast than they were even earlier today. So those of you want uh, those of you with kids wanting a day off of school, I'm uh, I'm sorry to your kids, but it looks like we might be staying. Now that could change. the The Lafayette Parish School System could make a different judgment there. But uh, as we, at, all I know right now is that St. Landry Parish Schools have decided they will be open, waiting to hear on others. If that happens during the show, of course, we'll tell you and stick around here on KPL just in case uh, any more news breaks throughout the afternoon and evening. There's some signs that we may be toward the end of the pandemic. I mean, we, we've talked about this, and I've said pretty frequently that we're, we're nearing the end of this, and that this is endemic more than it is pandemic at this point. Yesterday I mentioned uh, a, a statistician, Jeff Asher, put out a, a chart that, that showed that the hospitalizations are kind of plateauing right now. And if that holds, then, then Omicron uh, is, as all evidence has suggested, a whole lot less severe because the hospitalization numbers are nowhere near as high as they were and they're plateauing earlier. Also a very interesting data point. Peloton has announced that they are going to cease production or, or roll back production of their exercise bikes and treadmills. The demand is a bit lower. Also, I don't think because of the economy, a whole lot of people have the money to pay for it right now because it is expensive not only to get the bike or the treadmill, but also to have the, the subscription service. This could be a sign the lack of demand could be not just an economic sign, but also a sign that, that people just aren't staying at home and exercising much anymore, that people are ready to start moving outdoors and being outside a whole lot more. Right now, we are seeing a surge of Omicron across the nation. Here in Lafayette, here in the state of Louisiana, here in the United States, across the world, we're seeing case numbers surge. But it's a very fast surge, and it's not as severe a surge. And the numbers will start trending back down. I think we're on the backside of this surge. And if that's the case, we really have to have a serious talk now about what we're going to do in case of another variant that gets discovered. And the answer is going to be, treat it like the flu. If you're sick, stay home. If you're not sick, go to work or go to school. No more of this, uh, of these 
weird regulations and weird rules and weird mitigation efforts. We need to have a we, we need to treat this as an, a normal sickness now because it is endemic and moving forward, we're going to have to treat it as a normal illness. And I'm really hoping that people start making this rational decision because the panic is not serving anybody any good. It's not doing anything but increasing. If somebody tests positive, they're aroused, somebody else, somebody else panics and goes to uh, and, 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 and goes out and gets a test and it clogs up the system and there's no symptoms and it's just creating more panic. It's time to treat it like a regular sickness. We do have a caller on the line, 232-1542, if you want to join in as well. We've got Robert on the line. Hello, Robert. How are you? I'm good. Um, you said something about how we treat it. Mm-hmm. We treat it as a cold. It's a cold. Yeah. And 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 make it. And then I, 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 right when you first you said that, it sounded like you were you were in panic mode with everybody else. But then I listened to the rest of what you said and uh, treated it like a flu. It's not even a flu. It's a cold. Mm-hmm. The one that, now the, the previous one was a flu. Yeah. And basically, all this stuff we're being bamboozled, plain and simple. You look at the flu numbers into in twenty twenty, the flu went away because they misdiagnosed intentionally so the hospitals could make money. They get 30 grand to put money on a ventilator. Also, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Making children wear these masks in school is child abuse. I don't have children, but if I did, my kid wouldn't be in any of those schools at this point. I wouldn't even let my, my dog go to, go to school with the way they treat these kids. So it, this is all a big thing trying to see. You can look at what's happening in Canada. You can look at what's happening in Australia. It's just trying to see how much the public will tolerate so they can get to the, the fate of the next NWO. I mean, it's so easy to figure out. And one of the saddest things is seeing how gullible people are that have fallen for this. It's really, it, it's, it, it's funny, but it's sad. So God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and you're absolutely right. This is way more cold than it is even flu. I'm, what I had it at the beginning of, of my school's Christmas break, and it felt the very first day that I really realized I was sick. I had a scratchy throat a couple days before that. But it felt like a head cold. It felt like a lot of congestion in my head causing a sore throat, a lot of drainage. And that's what I thought it was. That's what I was seeking treatment for, actually. I got tested. It was negative. I went and I, I, somebody convinced me to get another test just to see. They swabbed a little bit deeper and actually did tickle my brain on that second test. And I, I tested positive. And it felt like a head cold. And the main symptoms were over after a couple of days. I, I got actually um, the cortisone shot and, and an antibiotic shot. Don't they're not treatments for COVID. I got it before I got the second test, but that eliminated most of the symptoms. This is something that we have to treat. Now, granted, Omicron is a whole lot more contagious and it can it does have the potential to get you really sick. But the symptoms, by and large, are way less severe. It needs to be treated like an ordinary sickness. You get sick. You stay home. You don't go to work. You don't go to school. You wait until you're better, and then you go back. The flu season is going to come back. We will have COVID seasons, probably at the same time. Cold and flu and COVID season is what we're going to face here on out. Get your flu shot. Get a COVID shot if you want to. Wash your hands, brush your teeth, do all the normal sanitary things you do, and live your life. Going back to full-on masking is not going to work. 
Shutting down schools is not going to work. Shutting down the economy is not going to work. Treat it like every other illness and move on because it is affecting our lives in multiple ways, all of which are harmful. The panic is not helping. And I know that there are people out there, people I work with, people I know and love, people who are very worried over this illness, who will not like me saying that. And I have these discussions with them. None of the data shows that this is something to have a major panic over. But it is causing disruptions in our lives. It's not the sickness causing the disruptions in our lives. It is the handling of the sickness. It is the panic for a positive test and launching into quarantines. It is the miscommunication from health experts. It is multiple contradictory statements from the government, from health agencies, all of it's coming together to create mass panic. It is not at all helpful. And I wish, I wish that everybody could see the impact that it's having on students, teachers, student athletes, administrators. It is wrecking havoc in the school systems. Again, not the virus itself, but the way it's being handled. The panic is the real sickness here. COVID is serious. And yes, the early forms of COVID were very dangerous. But a lot of it was due to comorbidities. And a lot of it was due to people just not taking it seriously at the time. The government, the media, nobody took it seriously until they did. And then there was an overreaction to it. We shut down the economy. We forced masks. We forced all these mitigation things that actually didn't work. What did work? Vaccines. Washing your hands. Just general, basic etiquette. Sanitary etiquette. But that's not the way that we handled it. We relied on the government too much to make these rules, and it caused chaos. Thank you guys very much. 23 hours until we return here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 965 KPL. Check me out on social media, Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show. And you can find our podcast on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. We'll be back tomorrow.